Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Hey there, Barry. Good evening. <laughs> Good evening. Welcome to Critical Media Studies Podcast After Dark. After Dark, man. This is... Um... It's a change, but here we are. Anyways, uh, welcome back. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Um, today, we are going to start something different. Uh, and this is not a change in focus, but it's it's we we are we've got a bold a bold project on tap um, in that we are going to be looking at a much longer text than we usually do. Uh, one of our listeners had asked us if we would be interested in doing something on the Frankfurt School, particularly Horkheimer Adorno. So we said, sure, that'd be an interesting thing to look at. And we were looking at um, the Dialectic of Enlightenment, specifically the chapter on Odysseus and myth. That was going to be what we did and um, quickly changed our minds and decided, hey, why do one chapter when you can do the entire... (laughs) Why, why why do one when you can do it all um but I I think I think it's a kind of important that we take a minute to explain the rationale behind this because this is not um easygoing this is not light feathery reading um but for my own part this this was um I don't even know how to say it. this this felt like something that needed more attention than a single chapter because the argument seems much bigger and much more timely and much more nuanced than I had originally assumed when I dug in. Um, so, you know, my, my response was, wow, no, there's, there's a bigger argument that needs to be discussed, but I think you had, um, but you had a similar response. No, I had a similar response and, and, and I actually, I made a joke that, um, I think I made a joke and then all of a sudden we looked at each other and we said, hey, well, maybe maybe your joke isn't uh, that silly or maybe there's a truth in the joke. But I I think I made a remark about how incredibly rich the Odysseus chapter is. Um, it's not just deep. It's just like it's far. I mean, they're polymaths, right? Adorno, Horkheimer. Um, they seem to know everything. They're writing from a position where they're philosophically and historically informed. And so it's so rich and deep that I think I just made the passing joke and said, we could just do this whole book for the rest of our lives. And then all of a sudden, Michael said, hey, why not? Why but not? also, also what you were saying, Michael, um, I think very quickly, we both remarked on the fact that. And I guess I can give some background of the book um, that to sort of flesh out or to augment why it's timely. Um Dorno, Theodore Adorno and Horkheimer, they're writing this book in the early, uh, early 40s. 44. Pub- 44. Um, they're publishing it. They're publishing it soon after the war. Uh, they're Jewish academics in exile from Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. They're writing during wartime. Uh, part of their, you know, one of the impetuses, the explicit impetus for this is explaining, you know, why fascism? Why not revolution? Why not Marxist revolution? Uh, why did Marxist, rev- instead of, you know, Marxist revolution, why do we have fascism? 
So they are writing with that question of whither fascism, why fascism? Um, they're asking with those questions very much in mind. And so I think we both felt, well, you know, timely, timely mm -hmm. for our moment as well for that reason. Yeah. Um, so what got me was the approach to this, right? So the, the I mean, I mean the, the, the title in, in, in one way says it all, um, but, but, but still leaves so much to be discussed. So I, I think, you know, if we want to start with the central argument of the book and we maybe treat this first installment uh, as a primer for, for what's going to come. And I, mm -hmm. I think that's the plan, right? Is that we will mm -hmm. talk about the introduction of dialectic enlightenment, which is uh, the concept of enlightenment today uh, and sort of see if we can use this to get our sea legs. And then we'll follow this up with Odysseus, then Juliet, then the culture industry, and then the ant are then the limits of enlightenment. Um, the the title is fascinating to me because I, I'd never conceived of the enlightenment in problematic terms before, right? Like we are, or as a pro as a problem. As yeah, a problem. yeah. I, I mean, we're 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 conditioned to. I think especially as an academic to think of this is wow well this is the growth of knowledge this is you know the 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 distancing ourselves from uh from myth and um it, it was in, it was an incredibly interesting take so if we talk about enlightenment and a dialectical approach to enlightenment uh for me this was already new ground right new like, ground right so and i think yeah. new ground for most people mm -hmm. Did you want to add something or no, 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 I'll, ahead, I'll talk a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, I, well, I think I think you're right. I think for most people and certainly at the time that this was written, I mean, there are great 19th century philosophers and writers who started questioning the notion of progress in the wake of industrialism and started thinking that, you know, nothing else, the Industrial Revolution had its downsides. So, you know, there has been a sort of questioning about the price of progress and what it means for human living conditions and also the environment, right? Eco, mm -hmm. eco criticism and environmental concerns kind of begin in the 19th century. Um, so there have been critics of progress, even in the 19th century, at the height of the belief in progress. Still, I, I dare say that, uh, um, you know, there, the, the uh, notion of uh, the notion of progress, and that the enlightenment, scientific enlightenment, um, enlightenment reason, is a key to scientific progress, and that scientific progress is both good and linear. Mm -hmm. I think that idea. I mean, that idea. I don't think it died in 1944 when Adorno will write. You know, they were writing. I'm I'm just saying that they're writing against the grain. Even in 1944, in the height of the war, I'm sure there were people who were still thinking Hitler is an aberration. Hitler is an aberration, you know, and that if we can just win this war, uh, you know, we're going to get back on the course of progress. Um, and, of, and, and what do you think? I mean, I don't think I think a sort of intuitive, a rather naive uh, progressivism, belief in progress, and belief in science—that science is going to have all the answers. I don't think that's outdated yet. 
Even, even oh, I, 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 not only do I right. think that it's not outdated, I think quite frankly, it's, it's as in vogue as it's ever been. Sure. Sure. Right. Sure. This idea sure. that, that, w- w- well, paradoxically, right. I think paradoxically. Yeah. one camp that is fully engaged with the math, the numbers, the science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have a, uh, you know, a, a, a second group, which has completely turned its back. On right. the science numbers. I mean, there's, well, an, right, interesting, right, right. there's an interesting uh, schism there. The the thing for me, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I think maybe this is this is a good sort of springboard to actually start to talk about the argument, maybe at a more sure. level, um, is this idea about their relationship to the Enlightenment. Okay, mm-hmm. and that it's not so 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 they're not they're not taking the position that the enlightenment as we conceive of it or scientific progress or a faith in science or a faith in knowledge is bad is negative is right. wholly negative right, I, right. I, that's that's right. not the read that i get right. out of it at all I, right. I think rather what they're looking at is that you know consistent linear progress that 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 must be right that there's i think the line that struck me in this and it's it's a very short right mm-hmm. it's on, on page four of my version of this just enlightenment is totalitarian and <laughs> okay how, so could, that, that's how could that be and, but but <laughs> this idea that it is all-knowing that, that we can know yes, everything right. that that everything has a preferred or an optimal position and role uh and sequencing if you will um that's that struck me as novel and mm-hmm. n- well it struck me as novel right and so mm-hmm. the 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 mission of the enlightenment as as or the, this argument i guess the, as i understand it is that the enlightenment has tried to distance us from myth right like the enlightenment that's is the project period, of the enlightenment. Is, is a period of maturation of growing up right we have reached a point where we are done with the silly belief in myth and doctrine and that now all things can be known and proved and that science and efficiency are key. I mean, there's, I, I pick up, like I'm seeing Elul's argument here, right? With this move towards efficiency and perfection. Sure. And, sure. Um, you know, the argument, th- the argument they make is that this, is totalitarian and that in many ways it is no different than myth that Mm -hmm. the enlightenment's project to distance itself from myth and usher us into an age of knowledge and science is still mythical we're just using a different Mm -hmm. framing Mm -hmm. for it and man i had never considered that Mm -hmm. and it took me a long time to even wrap my head around how this is possible so maybe we should talk a few minutes about unpacking this Mm -hmm. well i think that the um just to remark on a couple things that you brought up it's not so much the title is doing a lot of heavy lifting and so i'll talk a little bit about the title but as you mentioned it's not so much that enlightenment in itself is totalitarian like you you picked a, that was a great pull quote you put you you picked um, 
But it isn't so much, as I understand it, it isn't so much that the enlightenment is tro- totalitarian, but as you mentioned, the project of enlightenment or the insistence that enlightenment, and this is, gets us directly to the title, the insistence that enlightenment is enlightenment, that it's identical to itself, that enlightenment exists as the opposite of myth, the polar opposite of myth. And that's implicit, not necessarily in the dialectic of enlightenment or the concept of enlightenment, but it's certainly implicit in the explicit, in the project of enlightenment. Right. That in order to enact enlightenment, you have to proceed as if that there is no contradiction that exists within the concept of enlightenment. So that enlightenment stands as in the mind of the enlightener, the progressive enlightenment. Enlightenment stands as the total polar opposite, the binary opposite to myth, which needs to be utterly vanquished in order to for enlightenment to reign in reign supreme the project of enlightenment to vanquish myth is a total misunderstanding and that i think is what's the totalitarian um, uh, I, that's the totalitarian aspect of enlightenment that they're speaking i think we should play a game sure yeah so i'm going to throw some lines at you you're going to throw, uh, you're gonna throw. And and I think no well they're 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 we are going to turn the dialectic of enlightenment into a quiz game. I'm ready for it. It, it is, is indeed. These are these studies podcasts after dark. This after is a dark. carefully curated <laughs> list of pull quotes. Here. Okay, but All right. but I think there, there's a few things that I want to talk about in terms of understanding how the project comes together and Let's being able to say, look, enlightenment is the the move into knowledge and 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 reason and science right. and we're distancing ourselves from myth but they're able to say these two come back together and so there's a couple interesting moments that i think we should talk okay. about okay here all we right. go all right ready i'm gonna d- dance around a little bit here humans right. believe themselves free of fear when there is no longer anything unknown okay right so this right. is the idea that the enlightenment is liberating where we can know okay enlightenment is mythical fear radicalized the pure imminence of positivism its ultimate product is nothing other than a form of universal taboo nothing is allowed to remain outside since the mere idea of outside is the source of fear that right there right there that sentence read that last sentence one more time because i nothing have is allowed point. nothing is right. allowed to remain outside and this is outside right. of our knowledge base our right start, outside our of the knowledge base of in line since the mere idea of outside is the source of fear. My comment, quick comment. That are it. That is the essence. That explains the, the first quote you gave me, mm-hmm. the first quote you read. Enlightenment is totalitarian simply because it does not allow an outside. That's it. That, I mean, you just explained it. That That's their reason right. for enlightenment being totalitarian. That's what they mean by that. Now, I think one of the other passages you read suggests, I'm going to go back to the title to sort of gloss it. Um, one, of, one of the sentences, uh, there's a sentence that you read that talked about um, uh, radicalized. Enlightenment is myth radicalized. Or, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let, me, let me gloss that sentence in relation to the title. 
dialectic of enlightenment. And also, I think when I do that, I think I'm also, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm kind of laying out the argument that uh, Adorno Horkheimer elaborate in this first introductory chapter of the concept of enlightenment. What they what they're saying in that statement, but what they do throughout the book, and certainly in this introduction, introductory chapter of the concept of enlightenment, is they're always insisting on a dialectical understanding of both enlightenment and myth, so that this is their characteristic move, not only in the introduction, but we're going to see it throughout. They point to enlightenment and they find the mythic structure or the mythic overlay or the mythic residual mythic patterns in the claims uh, of enlightenment thinkers. Likewise, they go into myth, and this is to me is one of the most striking things about the concept of enlightenment chapter, which they're going to pick up and you know continue in their reading their really radical and weird odd reading of the odyssey that basically assumes that odysseus is a bourgeois from the 19th century from the from the 17th, 19th century i'll tell you though wow. it's I'm, I'm excited i'm excited to talk about that because what they did with fitting the the, the story of odysseus ultimate retrofitting right is masterful yeah. no it's it's retrofit but but this is this is an example again the title dialectic of enlightenment um, enlightenment has its mythic residue or its mythic component. One of the things they do in the Odysseus and myth chapter, and certainly in the concept of enlightenment chapter throughout the book, they note that myth itself contains enlightenment ideas. Right. It's easy. In other words, it's easy for, this is why it's a dialectic of enlightenment. What that means is that it's easy for enlightenment to become myth, and for myth to become enlightened, right? These notions are never stable. Enlightenment thinkers want to think that enlightenment is a stable thing. When they do that, they become totalitarian. That's that's kind of close to my soundbite in this book, I think. That I mean, when totalitarian, when enlightenment thinkers, you know, insist that they have the unified true idea of enlightenment, they become totalizing thinkers and usually horrible genocidal politicians. Okay, so good. Here we go. Next one. You you, Next you one. stole you stole one from me with that explanation. Oh. But it works. Oh. Okay. Oh. So, uh, da, 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 da. Okay. The more completely the machinery of thought subjugates existence, the more blindly it is satisfied with reproducing it. Enlightenment thereby regresses to the mythology right. that has never right. been able to escape. For mythology right. has reflected in its forms the essence of the existing order, cyclical motion, fate, domination of the world as truth, and had renounced hope. Hmm. Well, I, I I got a little bit lost in that in the last sentence, but I think I understood the first sentence enough to say that. More example of what we were saying a moment ago, that enlightenment can turn into myth. Myth can turn into enlightenment or has aspects of, contains within it aspects of enlightenment. To pretend otherwise is bad juju. It to is. To pretend otherwise is totalitarian, has totalitarian implications. So here is, and, and this- You've got to dialecticize it. Right. You've got to dialecticize it. So another theme that pops up throughout here is domination, 
barbarism. These are all terms we're going to come to. Okay. And so the reason I included that last line, and, and, and let's revisit it for a second, because I think that this is a nice, succinct explanation of how we have um, enlightenment as a totalitarianism uh, influence. I and I don't think I quite processed it or heard it. So I, I definitely want you to reread that last song. It's so late. Let's hear it. It's late. It's late. So here we go. Mythology had reflected in its forms the essence of the existing order, cyclical motion, fate, domination, and the world is oh. truth, and had renounced hope. So the argument that I see in this, their understanding of mythology, is that the social order that is is has to stay the same forever. Exactly. It has must stay the same forever. And so, and in doing so, it reproduces that. Oh, domination. yeah, I got you. And so this is absolutely a that's what it does. That's what it does is reproduce the domination. But that's what the myth does. But if it is unchanging, if it is yes. if it is a yes, thing, agreed. so what else is mathematics? What else is science other than understanding the stable, unchanging order, reproducible, unchanging world that we have? Right. And so, the, what? So what they have basically done is they have taken what does he call it? The essence of the existing order, the forms, right? The the the, the this is this is Plato, right? This is the 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 perfect model of things this is science right. and mathematics plato believes in numbers right and we have used this to reproduce and i think they would argue and will argue justify the reproduction right of domination and so the return to barbarism is i'm well done the well return done. to barbarism as i'm understanding it is this step forward into science right in in, in into knowledge as power as into efficiency as yeah. a, I hate doing air quotes, my God, I'm sorry. As a step forward, which is really just a step back into the repeating cycle. Right, right. Oh. Absolutely. I got, you know, what, wonderfully done, wonderfully. I mean, that, that passage, did you, did you pick that before we, we got on the air? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> on the air. Um, so, so, but I can I say can I say that I what I love about what you just did is I mean you're showing the ways in which, and again the title this is about the dialectics of enlightenment. You their prose is you know you explicated uh, their technique what they're trying to do in their prose and you fought that sentence really exemplified it and I loved your gloss of it. What they're really trying to do is by saying a dialectic of enlightenment. And by saying that enlightenment believes that myth is, is its other, then what's happening, you know, uh, what's their book trying to do? It's try, It's going to always try to do a flip. And it's going to try to show the reader the ways in which one flips into the other, in which there is a constant kind of sachet, a constant reversal, a con uh, you know, that in the course of time, Enlightenment becomes myth, myth becomes enlightenment, um, and, you know, that it's always unstable. Mm -hmm. The danger comes when somebody politically tries to stabilize it. And um, one last thing about the, what you said about myth, I mean, that was, that's exactly right. Uh, what they're, what they're, you know, 
while they're, and this gets back to another thing you, you, we opened the, you mentioned this at the opening of the episode, Michael. Uh, this is not just a, a, a simple critique of enlightenment. Oh, bad enlightenment. Mm-hmm. It's not simply a critique. And actually the passage that you cited uh, is interestingly dialectical and open in this regard. So on the one hand, it criticizes mythic regimes. You you got the critique of mythic regimes from the Adorno-Horkheimer point of view. The critique of it is that myth has no hope. Myth has no hope. It offers no hope. It just tells you how the universe is, and you have rituals that perpetuate the state of the universe, the state that's, that uh, um, perpetuate the status quo. So, uh, that's the bad thing of myth. And let me just say one thing, one thing uh, before yeah, yeah. just just the other side, because it's important. But so there's a critique. This is typical of the book. This is why I think it's important. Um, there's a critique of myth, right? Myth gives you no hope because it gives you no hope. It's always reproducing the status quo. Now, on the other hand. Proof that this book is not simply enlightenment, bad juju, enlightenment, bad, bad thing. What enlightenment gives you, and it's a positive thing, according to Adorno and Horkheimer, I think, is hope. And see, this is where I wanted to jump in and say, this is where things got difficult. <laughs> okay, now hold on. This is not the only place things got things, difficult. Um, things stay difficult in this book for this reason, for this reason, because they're always moving into the opposite. Yeah, right? and it was tr- it's trying to situate what exactly their take on this is and it is i think it's important to note um that the argument is not enlightenment bad i think it's simply a god i can't say it simply i think rather it is a caution to you know to sell out wholesale for efficiency or to sell out wholesale for science and I, I'm curious, there are a couple mentions in this chapter about the role, about art, but it's not really, I mean, I, I think we're going to deal with this more with Juliet and um, sort of the, the. Um, well, I, I think we'll deal with this more elsewhere. I don't, we don't we, need to bring this up now. We're definitely going to deal with it in the Odysseus and myth yeah. chapter. Actually, the Sirens episode kind of represents art. Okay, I think, yes. Um so I, I think maybe let's let's take a second to talk about how and why it is we're taking a text from the 1940s and both of us had this moment where like I, I think I think you said something to the effect, I'll paraphrase your words. This is one of the most significant texts. Yeah, I did. Uh, I said, uh, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. It, 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 for, for us to be looking at and. So I, I, think- I well let, let, let me do all my hyperbole. When I, I was rereading Odysseus and Myth, I said, this may be the best work of theory in the 20th century. Yeah. Um so let's talk a little bit about how we come to that conclusion. Okay. And I'm I'm feeling less hyperbolic perhaps than you. So I'm gonna go first and let you, you know, come over top a- afterwards. But the thing, the thing for me was, as I'm being forced to reconsider the implications of the Enlightenment, I'm looking at where we are now in a land of big data and surveillance, connectivity, um, 
you know, a, a constant state of acceleration. And I'm thinking with the idea that acceleration is equals progress, right? That it, well, if it's not progress, it's certainly preferable or better than the previous state of being. Yes. And, and so it seems to me that I'm not going to say, because unlike I, I have hope, I, 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 I'm not going to be a mythical creature or a prisoner of the enlightenment. I have hope. So I'm not going to say that we're living in a totalitarianism regime or totalitarian regime, or that we are utterly dominated or that we have returned to a state of barbarism. But I am going to say that I think that a lot of the hallmarks of, of, of enlightenment of totalitarian enlightenment thank right? you. are really, really front and center now. You know, um, I don't have to ever go far to see, we were talking about this off, 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 you know, before we got together uh, to record about the article in the Atlantic about how, about um, privacy and how, or, or surveillance, excuse me, about how we are willingly and eagerly paying to be surveilled, right? Like the, this, this notion of the cost being less than the benefit. And I think that's a very scary way of existing. But I also think that that is simply the way that that is the current right now. And I don't know that fighting it is, I don't even know that you can fight it. And so I think that the, the arguments here play to a frightening degree mm. in our current setup. And that, that, that to me is, is, is the interest in looking at Horkheimer and Adorno. As much as I think this is fun, I, I think this is wildly applicable and, and, <laughs> and quite frankly, just another reason to stay up late and drink whiskey. Um, Michael, do you... Um... When you're talking about totalitarian enlightenment, totalitarianism that you're seeing around you, are you mostly talking about digital culture or exclusively talking about what, what I'm just talking about what you were talking about right there? What were you referring to in your last well, minute or two? I, I, I am certainly talking about digital culture, but I I think that it's important to maybe make the the, the, the comment that all culture is digital culture now. Ooh, you know, and I, I'm sure. I, 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 I'm sure. I'm sure. What's that? I'm sorry. What's that? Who read Stiegler in this Zoom chat? There. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure somebody's listening, and their their hair just stood up, and they're like, "Oh, <laughs> what's the email address? I'm going to crush this guy." Um, and that's fine. You know, I I can be crushed, but no, I I, I think that I I don't know that we can step outside of digital culture. Yeah. 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 you know and and so um yeah i'll i'll, I'll so, so that's you know if it's there that's a major manifestation for you know in our lives mm -hmm. if it, even if it was only there and i i think i don't believe it's only there i don't think you believe it's only there but oh. even if it were only there even if you're just naming a dynamic that's exclusive to it uh what does it mean to be exclusive to the internet that means we're all involved right yeah 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 so what's your take I couldn't add anything more than that. I think that we both felt, I, it seems like we both had the same feeling that there's a, you know, and I'm thinking particularly about um, our recent, relatively recent 
episode on Wendy Chun because mm-hmm. I don't think she uses the word enlightenment anywhere, but the sort of compulsive rationality, the compulsive progressivism of technology, mm-hmm. isn't that exactly what we're seeing anatomized in Adorno and Horkheimer? Very much. Yeah. So I, I was seeing it like you, I was seeing it primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in the digital uh, realm, mainly because a lot of our recent reading point, you know, points to something like a structure of compulsive rationality uh, that resembles the rationality of the marketplace, which, you know, also had, is also a model of compulsive totalizing rationality mm-hmm. uh, she talks about neoliberalism yeah, yeah. when talks about no, I, I think it's very much obviously in- is that kind of thing but you know in her in her um, uh, arguments about digital programs and updating to remain the same you have this you know insistence that we have to stay on the same path because the path is a path that is advancing us towards something mm-hmm and again, that idea that there is always needing to be a step forward to forward. progress to, yeah, I, I think, I think, so I, I it, it seems to me then, and this is, this is, you know, uh, a happy, a happy, though not unexpected thing. That's, that's, that's the shared concern here, right? Yeah. Um, so if we let, let's, I think we can, we can wrap up and maybe just take a look forward as we wrap up here. Um, the next episode that we're going to do is uh, Odysseus or myth and enlightenment. So the idea here was to use this discussion to set the table. Um, in, in our next one, we're talking about how Horkheimer Adorno basically, how did you put it what, about bourgeois, or, of Odysseus being a bourgeois? Well, I mean, this this actually comes up. I, I can't find the place, and uh, but there there's actually a sentence here uh, in the concept of enlightenment where he's uh-huh. equated with a, where they equate Odysseus with the property owner. Mm-hmm. The property owner, the status of Odysseus as a property owner is what allows him to control servants. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So anyways. And, and to dominate other people. Right. Uh, but, but at a cost. And we'll. At a cost. We'll okay. get to this. So anyways, we, we will we will do uh, Odysseus or Myth and Enlightenment. Uh, then we will do Juliet separately, the culture industry separately, and then the limits of enlightenment separately. And the idea is that each of these arguments presents a a, a different what like cross section, different view of the dialectic of enlightenment yeah, right. that we're going to right. basically right. Uh, apply to where we are now. We see, you know, in some cases. Let me just add one thing to that. In some cases, I think could be, in fact, maybe in most cases, come to think of it, this is something we'll test out. Uh, so I'll just mention it. It's something maybe we'll return to and test out. I was about to say that, as you mentioned, yes, we're going to see these incredible, it's, it's a testament to the book, right? That we're, you know, the, these are the test cases. These are the test cases for the dialectic of enlightenment. They include things that you would not normally <laughs> include in that category, like Mickey Mouse, mm-hmm. Hollywood film, right. Odysseus, mm-hmm. uh, the pornography of Marquis de Sade. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily my first, 
you know, my go-to uh, discussion boards for uh, the dialectic of enlightenment. But nonetheless, in discussing these chapters, they are intended to be case studies of the dialectic of enlightenment. One thing I would add is that in most of the cases, I think I would, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this now and we'll see how stupid, whether it fits later and how stupid it is, but, or how futile it is. But I, I dare say that a lot of, in a lot of the case studies, we're gonna see that the impasse of enlightenment might be what they're really talking about. That enlightenment can't help but fall on its feet or trip over its feet or cause trouble. That uh, the dialectic isn't just a dialectic. Then Now in the next chapter that we talk about, I think we really are going to see the dialectic of myth and enlightenment because myth and enlightenment are going to kind of trip over each other yeah. and get confounded in but I think when you get to Saad and to Hollywood in the culture industry chapter, I think you get something more like you have enlightenment falls on its feet. It has a structural, it, it encounters its own structural contradictions and it can't help but falter. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be something closer to the impasse of enlightenment. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. We, we like, like Odysseus, we have set sail very and we are going to uh, we're 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 going to see this one through. So um, hopefully, uh, for those of you listening or watching, uh, first of all, thank you again. Uh, we'll go through the whole uh, cattle call here. Like, subscribe, ask us questions, engage. Let's talk. Let's figure out what we're share. doing. Share, share. Uh, by all means, share. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think this is the idea here again was that we can just sort of provide uh, a rationale for what it is that we're doing and then a preview for how we're going to do it. And then sort mm. of lay out the, the basic underlying argument that, that holds the book together. So Barry with that. Um, and as always, thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to engaging reading over the next several weeks. All right. Me too. All Take right. care. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the critical media studies podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at critical media studies, podcast.com.